So this retreat, a week has, has passed and there's a week left. And you've heard this Sotavantaba Munjantu Satang every day, so it'll probably stick in your memory. Which is a good thing if you're going to have anything stick to keep remembering. The words uh, help to um, help you to remember. Uh, the, the world. You know, we live in a realm where we forget everything, so we. But we can also remember. So reflection is remembering, ability to remember. Or sati, uh, sati is remembering bringing back into consciousness the way it is, noticing, bringing back. And, and then panya is informing one's conscious experience with wisdom. So we forget, and then we can remember. So we remember the things that are worth remembering. You forget the things that are not worth remembering. So sort of one ta ye sort of worth remembering. It helps you if you use it. You know, the listener, the one who's awake and listening. I remember sometimes I have a chance to go on the London Underground and I and uh, I always kind of like going on the London Underground because it was such a entertaining experience <laughs> and uh, and they because uh, <laughs> I like to just kind of open my mind to it and you feel the, the kind of strange things that you that um, the vibrations and the strange people and things that happen <laughs> remember traveling one morning I was going into London on the underground and I had to train change uh, from some place to another, and was waiting for the for the next uh, train to come, and the and a man came by. He just got off a, a train, and he 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 sticks his tongue out at me, and 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 and, 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 and uh, says some some insulting remark, and then and uh, sitting there on the bench, just uh, absorbing that kind of. Uh, and then the next moment, a, a young woman, uh, uh, probably from the Caribbean, black woman, came up, and she, she was, uh, she was interested. She says, "What do you believe in, and what are you doing?" And she says, and then she says "I'm a Jehovah's Witness." <laughs> <laughs> but that was a lot better than sticking out your tongue and <laughs> swearing. <laughs> But also paying attention to what it feels like, you know, to like bringing attention to your to to your mind when when you're when these things happen to you. To train yourself to remember to do that. I, I remember being um, a very kind of basically a self-conscious 
kind of person where, you, you know, from childhood feeling somewhat, you know, having a kind of shy temperament and then feeling very self-conscious that one, uh, one was, you know, didn't particularly want to stand out in a crowd and uh, so you kind of tried to blend in to things and then you end up <laughs> spending your life in the most unusual garment <laughs> where no matter where I go I stand out. <laughs> And so you do get, and, and living in, in, in England, for example, where people don't know, in Thailand, it's, everybody's treating you with respect. I stand out in Thailand because I'm so big and I'm a Western monk. But in Thailand, at least, they're very respectful. So you, you, know, you get inflated in your head all the time. You're always going like this <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and saying very good things about you and wanting to offer you things. And, and so even though you're a foreigner uh, in Thailand, you're always getting this respect and they're kind of raised up and that's it, very pleasant. Then coming here, you know, you get insulted. <laughs> you know, they get called Hare Krishna and, and that's, I don't mind that, but, but it's the tone of voice, isn't it? The kind of jeering, uh, jeering sound. Uh, of making fun or, or uh, uh, just lashing out in some ways. And Hare Krishna is a, one of the, the better things you get called. <laughs> but in terms of mindfulness, it's you watch. You know, I used to feel like it just when, when somebody was <coughs> making fun of me or jeering at me, I'd, and then I'd watch my, I'd try to concentrate on my heart or in my, where, or in the solar plexus or where you feel uh, like fear or being threatened by uh, external forces. And, uh, and I could, you know, I could study this, this how, this, what this is like. Because I've never been physically attacked or abused in any way on physical level. And in, fortunately here, people are basically fairly polite, and so, or they usually rather ignore you than make fun of you, but then there's always these certain kind of rowdy types, <laughs> usually boys. <clears throat> so this is, uh, remember the sort of one to rest in that state of attention, to remember that. And then you can feel the, the sense of like being annoyed, being hurt, being fed up, or wanting to, to uh, feel, I don't, I don't want to stand out, I want to blend in. I, don't, I, I used to uh, you know, feel like I wish we could wear jeans or something like that. Uh, we could blend in to the crowd. But then after I actually used the, the mindfulness, then, then uh, I began to really not mind it. 
There's another way of looking at it. This is this another way of looking at this this appearance of a shaven-headed person with a saffron robe. Is in the uh, uh, story of the Buddha's uh, the the heavenly messengers, the four heavenly messengers that awakened Prince Siddhartha. Uh, was the old man was the first heavenly messenger. What the heavenly messenger? is someone that warns you about the nature of things. So old age is a heavenly messenger. Now then living here in the West where oftentimes old age is regarded as a kind of, you know, um, it's, not, it's not respected very much and old people are usually not highly regarded. So, uh, and yet when you start looking at old people as heavenly messengers, they're, they're, they're reminding you of old age. This is what we're all, this is, you know, this is what life isn't, is about getting old. It's a, it's a warning sign to break, to awaken you to the, to the way things are in this human realm. Old age, sickness, death. And then the fourth one was the summoner, the monk, with a shaven head, a saffron robe sitting under a tree, meditating. Uh, then you think, well, this is, a, this is a heavenly messenger. This robe is acting as a heavenly messenger here in Britain. And I think, I'm a heavenly messenger. <laughs> and so, uh, and I'm trying not to take this personally on a personal <coughs> level. But it is a way of reflecting on, on it in, in a way that is, these people have said, why don't you change the robes to more Western style of uh, you know, kind of. And then I think I wouldn't want to do that. I want to keep it because it's more like a an archetype. You know, it's a, it's gone through how many two thousand five hundred forty years of of different civilizations arising and ceasing. It's lasted, you know, longer than the Roman Empire or the or the Greeks or the or the British Empire or the or the uh, all the different Chinese dynasties and and all the different kingdoms and and tyrants and demagogues and and all the rest that have come and gone and and have you know made a mess of everything <laughs> and <laughs> shouted that they're powerful and they're that they will uh, that they're they will be remembered forever. But then you have this. This thread, at least probably before the Buddha, but this this samana pattern of the the renunciate religious person on the spiritual path, and so this is within a society like I think this is a very important presence. Like Ajahn Birdamo is in now in Poland and uh, bringing the the Devaduta, a heavenly messenger, is now. In Warsaw tonight. So reflecting on this, uh, it, you're getting outside the personal. You know, you how dare you make fun of me, or uh, you're insulting me as a person, or uh, or brings up the old kind of primordial fears that you have of being made fun of, or looked down on, or despised. But when you start remembering what it really is, 
then you you find it you, you see it as a is a very useful thing to be to wear to maintain the the appearance in a country like this the archetypal appearance the the monk or the samana the religious practitioner the shaven head is a bit startling isn't it and now it's not it's quite fashionable <laughs> and even even for women no. it's uh, it's not not a shock I mean, when with the nuns first started shaving their head years ago that was a, it was a shocking thing men can get away with it much easier because you think bald-headed men are, are quite you know common but but uh, shaven-headed bald-headed women never I would ever see that or, or <coughs> women would shave their head was usually a sign of humiliating them it used to be a punishment to humiliate women you'd shave their hair off and they sign that they were bad women or criminals in the in the European setting so so this but it is a shocking uh, perception isn't it the shaven head because hair is very much a, in you know a kind of vain thing to have beautiful hair and and spend a lot of money on making it look attractive <laughs> <laughs> then the color this is a strange color it's not a color that that you sell you hardly ever used in fashion this particular color hardly ever do you see it used in in uh, fashion in fashion they're desperate to do anything that's different but seldom is this color ever used because it's, I don't think it's a, an attractive color. It's not a sexually kind of arousing color or anything. So it, it, uh, it's a kind of color that, that uh, kind of earthy color in a way, but it's not, it's not what people really want to wear. Uh, you, years ago up in Newcastle, they the Phoenix company that make all these kind of raincoats and tents and sleeping bags and and they they had this color of uh, material in Gore-Tex and they made they started making the kind of rain jackets with hoods and Gore-Tex and in a color kind of color like this a little lighter than this but and uh, but nobody wanted it nobody'd buy it the, the lay people, but when the, the uh, monks up in Newcastle found out that they had Gore-Tex jackets, <laughs> <laughs> now we all have one. But they discontinued that color because no lay people wouldn't even buy the color, They'd <coughs> buy any other color but this. This interesting that they just see how what the color, uh, the perception, how that affects the mind. Because colors do give us, impress us, you know, they have an, an emotional, we have an emotional reaction to them. So the Samana is one, a man or a woman, male or female, who, uh, and so even the, even the uh, gender differences are diminished. The Sister Tanasanti and, and, and I, and, and uh, Samanera, 
Attila is all just the, the same shaven head. She's, we have to kind of be slightly sexist here in, uh, in giving her a kind of darker brown robe so that everybody knows that she's a woman, a nun, not a monk. <laughs> because if she's wearing this color, she'd probably think she was a monk. <laughs> They're color coded. <laughs> but in terms of, of, like, in just in reading Joseph Campbell's book on myths and an interesting story, you know, the, the study of symbolism in mythology, and, and is one uh, begins to to uh, appreciate the how things look, the appearance, the effect of of symbols on the human consciousness, or uh, the presence of something, or the power of language, and. Uh, how, you know, this, the, the sensitive state that we abide in as a human entity, you know, where, where what, we, what impresses us through, this, say, sight or sound, smell, taste or touch, or just the power of, of thought or words and language or tone of voice. So this is, when we say this is a sense realm, this, is, this means that we're in this continuously ongoing sensitive state from birth till death. And so it is, can be very frightening and threatening. And we all find various ways of protecting or defending ourselves against the, this sensitivity and vulnerability. When you think of yourself in this vast universe, one little human body like this, you know, the skin that is uh, not very tough and just this kind of soft, uh, thing on two legs and he's standing up in this vast universe that's unknown. Oh, you sense the power of the universe you're in. It's so mysterious and so vast and so filled with power and unknown forces that inevitably we tend to, to shut down to it. You just kind of get on with your life in, in trying to kind of limit yourselves to seeing things only that, that make you feel secure and safe. And so we gather together in little groups of families and tribes and so forth to, to reinforce, to make ourselves feel secure and safe within this, this rather terrifying universe. That if you open to it, it really I remember a feeling at first when in my fairly monastic life, I couldn't look up at the sky. I mean, I just uh, in Thailand, I just couldn't bear to look at the stars because, because as I opened myself more, and uh, and just was in that more reflective state, it was too awe-inspiring, too mysterious, too vast, and emotionally, I just feel uh, a, a kind of terror. So I spent a lot of time just looking at the, at the ground, just kind of, so I wouldn't stub my toes and walk on the ants and things like that. By the time I came to England, I, I, I really 
like the sky. And this Amravati, the first impression I had of Amravati was the sky. Because it's like a huge dome above this the sky. It, it has this kind of vi- feel, this sense of, of sky, like a huge dome above. And, and I also had strong signs of like, like uh, feelings of, of, be, of wanting to go to the North Pole. Uh, be in the in the kind of spacious, in 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 kind of vast spaces, and in places that are quite terrifying. One time I had a vision of myself, in uh, up in the north, near the North Pole or somewhere up in the Arctic Circle, alone, in a kind of twilight realm where there's neither day nor night, and and wolves howling in the distance, and and I was lying uh, naked in the snow, dying, and, and freezing to death in this, uh, in this, uh, and, and there was no help, there's no, no, no forces coming to help me. And there was this howling wind blowing, and, the ho- and then the wolves, and then this twilight, and this vast, icy cold silence. Terrifying, isn't it? But it wasn't. Actually, it was a peaceful feeling. Because you know, all those things convey, you know, to a, one on a, per, on a personal way, a, what you most dread, being alone, out in the cold, wild animals nearby, uh, no, no sign of help, no way of being rescued, uh, in, a, in a kind of uh, nowhere to go, uh, just and it's and the, and the kind of the the silence and the cold and the howling wind, <coughs> dying, death. They're all in in human symbolism, uh, rather terrifying uh, uh, signs. But yet the actual effect of that sign in my that I had was of peace, peacefulness. Uh, kind of unity, uh, vast peacefulness, uh, fearlessness. It wasn't wasn't a fright. It was fear was not generated from that. It was just quite, quite. So I feel is the effect of of practicing. You know, because before that, years before that, I would that probably I would probably wouldn't have had such a a dream. But in in. Uh, but if I had, it would have probably been a nightmare for me. So in uh, in 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 uh, so being here in the, in the northern hemisphere, in this far north, I've always quite enjoyed that that sense of silence that uh, that one has here in in Britain. It's a very silent country and that and in nature so silence has been my sign really the sound of silence and using space and silence as 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 a reference point because uh, this is this expands because this is uh, in infinity isn't it you're 
you're beginning to realize infinity where there's no limit the, the vast unlimited immeasurable of the sound of silence or of space and that gives you the ability to see in context the limited in the forms and the the the, uh, the human form for example or the Buddha Rupa the human form in vast space and so it's like the the form and then the space and the form you, you're drawn to the form but if you look beyond the form you see the space the in, and space is infinite isn't it it goes on and on we, had, we can't see the end of it we can't know the end of it or or the silence, like when you really get attuned to the sound of silence, it's like infinity. It's it's it's, it's all embracing. It has no boundary. So in, in contemplating this, you you know you you begin to expand your your informing your conscious experience with wisdom by noticing the way things are. And this is Dhamma, the way it is, the truth of the way it is. Now we're all conscious beings, so once you're born from your mother's womb, then you start your life as a separate conscious entity in the universe. So each one of us is, is a point of consciousness in this whole universe. You know, and this is just the way it is. This isn't a, a phil- uh, an abstract philosophy, but you contemplate this. You are the center of the universe in terms of direct experience. Because everything comes at you, you know, at this form, isn't it? In terms of experience. In this, even in this room, you, you know, you come and go. And, and in my consciousness. So, just noting that the existential realities that we're that uh, that we're that are so much with us is the way it is, but which we we tend to interpret always in a very ignorant way: the self view, the cultural view, the the various uh, um, uh, complicated ways of describing experience that tend to to leave us in a state of of ignorance and not understanding things as they are. So consciousness, or vijnana, is is a, is a natural function. It's not consciousness is is and the body come with you know when you're born, then you the body is is out as a separate entity in the universe, and it's conscious. So then that being, that entity, can be is conditioned. So you you whatever through your parents and your family and so forth. You, you acquire all their attitudes, their language, their way of doing things, their, their uh, opinions and views. And some of them are good and skillful, and others are all wrong and terrible or perverted or, or distorted or criminal even or 
whatever, or crazy, or they can be very refined or very uh, intelligent. But, but, the, but the basically, we're conditioned out of ignorance, out of avijja, not understanding Dhamma. So we, are, we be, our consciousness then is constantly being influenced with avijja, with ignorance. So our experience of life is basically through our, we, our interpretation, the way we interpret life is, is with this ignorance. So now in terms of Dhamma, we're, we're informing conscious experience with wisdom. You're using wisdom rather than avicca or panya, or use the word panya. So the Buddhist teachings are, are panya teachings, they're wisdom teachings. Like the Four Noble Truths, the Paticca Samuppada, the Dependent Origination. There's a, if you don't have, we have a, that very good book by Tanjaukun Tamapidoka in English called Dependent Origination, which is a very, we have it here for free distribution and we could get some copies for those who don't have it. But it's a very good explanation of how to meditate on this Dependent Origination teaching. But this, but it's pointing to this, um, the, the way things are, this reflective capacity to, to observe and notice. To open the mind and then wisely reflecting on the way it is. So the, the teachings are about, like a Nietzsche Dukkanata about the conditioned world, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not-self. They're not teachings you grasp and project onto experience, but you reflect upon, you study impermanence, suffering, the sense of yourself. You study it, you feel it, you begin to, to, uh, to recognize the, the illusoriness of, of the ego, of the personality. So now, see, in the meditation retreat, we are actually d- d- using wisdom to inform conscious experience. So, uh, so we say in a retreat like this, we limit the uh, the the options down. So we we're trying to simplify everything so that you're not caught up in too many complicated things that throw you back into the old avita habit. So you you, you know just the the silence, the the kind of a subdued routine and the organization and all this is an attempt to simplify uh, the uh, living here in order to kind of really uh, look more closely at the way it is. To look at just the very basic things that don't seem very important to us in the worldly life, like your inhalation, exhalation. <coughs> Not to mention the sound of silence. Whoever bothers with that? People, even when they do hear, they think it's something wrong with their ears. <laughs> or the four foundations of mindfulness. That's brilliant, isn't it? Four foundations of mindfulness. So you're, you're bringing into your mindfulness is remembering. So, Gayanupasana Satipatthana, the body. The rupa. So you remember the body's here. You're mindful of the body. 
not thinking about a body as if you're, you know, as if you didn't have one and you're just kind of uh, abstractly uh, thinking about bodies, but you're actually is right here, sitting right here. So you remember the body's here. And I remember when I first started doing this, I saw so much in my brain. Supposed to be mindful of the body. What are you supposed to do? You know, watch the, uh, observe the posture. So what? I'm sitting. <laughs> because I, I, I want. I, I just had never really, really opened my mind to the body and the present. As a completely new way of looking at it. It had been easier for me to go to the library and get a book on, on anatomy and study charts in a book than to be aware of my own body. I was used to that kind of knowledge, you know, going to the library and getting a book on anatomy and physiology. And when I was in the Navy, I was a medic, so I learned all the, all the bones. I could recite all the bones in the body. And... Uh, all oh, kind of different nervous system and all the rest, you know. Uh, in charts, give me a chart and I can memorize it. But I have a, a simple reflection on the presence of that which actually exists, that's influencing consciousness right now, was, wasn't an intellectual exercise, but it was uh, an intuitive one where you, you were watching, you're listening. You're not even, at, you don't even have to look, you know. I can't. <coughs> to kind of keep looking around to see my body, but I can sit here with my eyes closed, but I can still feel, bring this body into consciousness. Then, informing this experience with wisdom, using the wisdom, the Four Noble Truths. The, and the, all the, the teachings are in the scriptures, in the suttas and that, are ways of, 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 of using wisdom, uh, developing wisdom, informing conscious experience with wisdom about just the, the way the body is in the present. Before, I was, I, things didn't have any reality unless you had, unless you could name them and <coughs> fix them into a perceptual position. So, so I would, uh, you know, my experience of life, it had to have a name before I could recognize it. I wasn't aware of, of that which was nameless because the, my conscious experience had to, could only kind of really things could only reach consciousness if you had a, a name for them. And so you, you, you're, you experience life through, through perceptions, through memories, through language, through concepts all the time. But then you can have mystical experiences where this fails, you know. And I remember when I was 19, I had this mystical experience where my mind stopped thinking. And there was this awareness, this, and this ringing 
the sound of silence ringing, there's no self. There's no... 19 years old is when when you're really, you know, self-conscious plus, plus, plus. <laughs> painful age. I was in the Navy, too. I was really miserable, 19-year-old. And suddenly it stopped. The self just dropped and there was just a ringing silence and there was a this pure state of attention and no thought. That was a powerful experience that just happened. It wasn't on, I wasn't on drugs or anything. <laughs> <coughs> so that was a, a sign, it's like an awakening sign, something in me. You know, I didn't figure out what it was, but it did, was like a, a kind of sign to me that there was, you know, more to experience than just the 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 kind of boring confines that my conditioned mind offered. Because by the time I was nineteen, I I was uh, you know just had I tended to see the world in such rigid patterns and kind of dualistic ways, and it was a dreary world in that in that kind of dreariness of absolute right and wrong, good and bad, and so forth. It was just it, it's something in me was repelled by life in terms of just fixed perceptual positions. Because intuitive, there was this sense there was much more to it. There was intuition. But this had never been mentioned or developed in the, in the cultural experience of my life. Completely left out. The whole education system was around... Um, conditioning the mind with ideas and concepts and language, beliefs, theories, ideas. So in uh, meditation then, in the Buddhism, uh, Buddhist meditation is a real developing, a cultivating process of, of intuition, an intuitive awareness, the body, the Vedananupasana. Sensitivity and Vedana sensitivity is pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pleasure nor pain. But even though I I, suff- I had a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain in life, I never really I just reacted to it. Pleasurable, I wanted more, pain I wanted to get away from it. Neither pleasure nor pain never thought of it. If it was neutral, then it wasn't it didn't even exist because I wouldn't notice. My life was based on pleasure and pain. You know, seeking pleasure, happiness, and trying to avoid pain and misery. So my conscious experience usually was I was conscious through pleasure and pain, through extreme experience, and quite unconscious on the in most of my life, which was <coughs> which was neither pleasurable nor painful. So in Vedananupasana Satipatthana, you really uh, kind of look into the the experience of pleasurable feeling, painful feeling, and neither pleasurable nor painful feeling. And that's an, you have these feelings, so you're 
you're beginning to notice, pay attention to the experience of pleasure and of pain and of neutral feeling. Then Jitanupasana Satipatthana, where you, you, uh, the, the mental, the, the mental states. You know, oh, it's a pretty moody character. You can get high, get low, I can be grumpy, I could be complaining, whinging, whining, uh, I could be frivolous, I could feel one with the universe, I could feel lonely and isolated, alienated, frightened, threatened, expansive, contracted, and all that. But these are just habits, you know, that you react to life. And then suddenly, Chitanupasana, where you're, you're, you're watching these states as, as you're experiencing them. So like, suddenly, how do I really feel right now in the mood of my mind? And at first I wanted to have a name for it, like it's this way or that way, but the, the mood is, is hard to fix unless it's an extreme mood. So much of what one's moods are, in terms of my moods, are neither, uh, are, not, are, not, are really, you can't kind of pin a name or a description onto it, but it is, you can definitely be aware of it. It's this way. So that what is this doing is it's putting you in this position of the knowing, of the witness, because you're, you're, you're paying attention to the, to the body, to the sensitive state that we're living in, to the mental states that we create, and then to the Dhamma, that we use the Tamanupasana Saribhatana, the we, we use the suffering, the the causes, the cessation, the path, the dependent origination. We we use all of these. these we we're now it, lo- looking using dhamma teaching, seeing the dhamma of pleasure and pain and neutral feeling, seeing the dhamma of the of the body, seeing the dhamma of the of the mood or state of mind or mental condition, rather than seeing it in terms of my mood, my feelings, my pain, my body. That is the, that is the avicca interpretation through consciousness. And now, say we are developing banya. It's an it's an educating in process, a real education of really informing conscious experience. This direct experience is not abstract. We're not speculating or abstracting anything, but direct knowing of the way it is within the conditions we find ourselves. So the four foundations of mindfulness Mindfulness, sati sampachanya. Sampachanya is like the clear comprehension or ability to, to bring into this conscious moment the way it is, noticing. It's like this. The, this is like this. It's like, the mood is like this. 
So if we say it's like this or the way it is, it's it's not it's not defining, but it's pointing, getting us to look, to notice what we're actually feeling, what it feels like, what it is as experience. But the knower is not the known. So we can't find the knower. We have to be the knower. We have to be the we we awaken. We can't find something that's awake. But it's a simple act of awakening, being awake, and knowing the way it is, which is the mental object. Or in terms of ultimate reality, that realization as the mental objects of the the body, the the, the of the Gaya, Vedana, Jitta, as we as we investigate and see through that and mindfully uh, understand it and inform ourselves with wisdom around these these very present existing experiences, conditions, then we we see the impermanency, let go, and then we realize the deathless or the unconditioned. The unlimited, unborn. This um, the goal, say, generally in Theravada Buddhism, is the realization of nibbana, liberation through nibbana. So, so this is this is um, you know through this investigation we actually realize. Cessation, the niroda, and that is nothing mysterious, but it's something we tend to ignore in the sense of a personal experience of life. So, on a personal level, uh, cessation is like annihilationism, isn't it? It's a kind of nihilistic. It's the death and the end, and and that when you're thinking about it, it's it, it all sounds very nihilistic. But in terms of uh, practice, when something ceases, there's still the, the knowing of the cessation of and the, and when you when you when you when you recognize the suffering that's caused through grasping at the conditioned world, conditioned realm, and you let go you have that insight into letting go and you develop that letting go, then the conditions cease and you're aware of the of the cessation, of the absence of that which was before. And awareness of the absence isn't isn't it grasping an idea of absence or nibbana or Cessation, but it's a realization. It's reality. It's like like beginning to tune in to the way things are, the deathless, the unconditioned, the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated. And that here and now, it's not a, it's not a, like a a high state that you create through a lot of concentration. It's through paying attention to experience that you 
know this uh, and realize this. Now we all have our karma to live with, and we have different character tendencies. And it's, it's possible uh, uh, in the sidewalk with Sister Tanasanti and Samanera Angelo, it's interesting talking about uh, our karmic um, dilemmas and how we have to deal with, you know, how to mindfully, wisely reflect upon our own peculiar experiences of life in the Sangha. Which might sound personal in a way, trying to break out of it, out of making it into a personal thing, because that that just creates an ego, uh, a sense of uh, of reinforcing the ego. But seeing the Dhamma of our own seemingly personal and unique experiences in our lives, our character tendencies, our karma. Like each one of us has our own karma to us. And there's no two people have the same kind of karmic inheritance. And so, you know, I used to used to find it frustrating at first because I what seemed simple for me seemed very difficult for somebody else. What was uh, simple for somebody else seemed difficult for me. And, and uh, always using myself as the kind of criterion for experience, I, I was always so easily misunderstood everybody else. But in the... In the learning to use the way you are, the kind of character you have, the, the way your mind works, your emotional habits, your, 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 the things that have happened to you in your life, your fears and desires, uh, good and bad, and experiences, and the whole, the whole thing is, is, is to be seen in terms of Dhamma, and it's to be, to be understood seen, reflected upon, and wisely reflected upon, and understood in terms of Dhamma. So that's why in, uh, we, you know, when when people, uh, you know, we tend to think maybe of, of, um, that we have to be a certain type of person to practice, or, or we have to have a lot of good qualities, or be very virtuous, or very high kind of character in order to really practice. Uh, because we tend to see, say, spiritual development is a very kind of very high level of human evolution, or we kind of raise it up. And and much, much, with many of us, we tend to dwell on ourselves, on our on our habits, our coming, the kind of negative side of our character. And give a lot of importance to our our weaknesses, our flaws, our bad habits. We we emphasize and make a big deal out of the weaknesses we have. So people have uh, you know some people feel very discouraged or feel very remotely uh, that they're 
their spiritual life cannot develop this lifetime because they've done too many bad things or made too many mistakes or got too many karmic obstructions or whatever. But I would never encourage that kind of thinking in anybody because encourage you to use your the karmic we all have karmic obstructions and they're part of the path. A lot of the things that that I thought were really uh, difficult and onerous and really painful for me and I thought were real hindrances and obstructions and obstacles in my spiritual development actually were very strengthening through through developing wisdom, sati and panya around some rather unpleasant and rather, you know, difficult character tendencies in myself that seemed, you know, on one side seemed to be very, you know, too much to bear and probably wouldn't, would be, uh, you know, make, make it impossible for me to, to develop very far. Actually, in the, when I look back, there's a very strengthening forces. Because when you suffer a lot and you've got, you really look, you know, it kind of forces you to pay attention. And you really, and you have to develop in a, a kind of a, a kind of streetwise ability to to work with something that's very painful and how to how to look at it rather than just run away from it. So in my own practice, it's kind of difficult emotional habits and fears and things that would come up. You know, that would I just wouldn't want to know about or avoid or I felt were too hard to bear, too difficult. I had to change my attitude. So I tried different upayas or skillful means to to work with various uh, uh, karmic conditions. So it's what using wisdom, isn't it? You, you, you experiment, you kind of look and see what works and what doesn't. You observe, you, kind of, you see the results of, of meditating like this or, or using this means to do to, uh, for some, something that, that uh, is, is in your way, is obstructing you in, at this time in your meditation. At first, I just, used, because I was, uh, you know, first started meditating, I just used kind of <laughs> willpower. You know, the idea you just kind of push through it. And so, and, and that worked up to a certain degree. That has certain, you know, well that has, that has, uh, one can do that with certain things, but it's, but it's not, but the spiritual realization isn't an, a willful act. So then you keep contemplating and, and learning. So even in the failures in this life, see them as, as failure is, is a very important thing to learn from. That it's not not a, a sign that you can't do it. It's just develop more wisdom around these things so that you see find something that you succeed in. So we learn from our failures. What doesn't work, or what is it, is uh, isn't useful.
like I the the one about you know uh, anger you know trying being brought up in this kind of family where you're not supposed to show anger and so developing from you know from early childhood a kind of suppression of of angry feeling and then uh, and then entering monastic life where this anger was uh, coming up and I just kept trying to fight it get rid of it resist it and I could see it wasn't working now I just tend to get more and more angry the more I resisted it so then I decided a skillful means of well instead of resisting it I'll really intentionally be angry so I started trying to bring it up to, to really you know be fully angry and watch it so I'd start thinking the things that really make me angry and I deliberately cultivate anger and rage inwardly I wasn't directing it at anybody it wasn't you know it wasn't an attempt to it was, the intention was to understand anger not to to use it uh, on anyone so but instead of this kind of furtive resistance and trying to get rid of it and avoid it or suppress it I, I realized that what I need to do is really kind of go for it you know really be angry and but mindfully be angry with wisdom so I began to to, to do that and then I could see you know I, I studied it I knew the feeling I could I could I, I knew what it felt like I could I realized I could bear the feeling I wasn't just caught in this in this uh, obsessive habit of resistance and denial with resentment you know, how many of you have you know we carry resentments through life the older you get sometimes you still have a lot of resentments about things the unfairness and the because in life we have to in, as we go through life there's so many unfair things done to us so many misunderstandings so many uh, unpleasant experiences It shouldn't be, and we, and and then we think stiff upper lip. You know, just get on with your life and forget it. It's over. But then it starts coming out in different ways. You know, like you can kind of get away with that for a while, but then, in the long run, it's going to come up. You know, it influences. It kind of, it kind of like, uh, like some kind of acid that kind of seeps out through the crack and you become cynical or negative or you get diseases or various things that, that through, uh, through uh, suppressing this resentment or denying it trying to put on a brave face and, and in a kind of noble sense of just get on with your life don't hang around with grudges and that's, that's kind of noble in its own way but in terms of emotions it's, it's devastating So in in Jitana Pasana Satipatthana, beginning to look at the emotion, the 
the fear, the the resentment, not to analyze it and take it personally, but to really study it, to feel it, to know it, to to um, let it be fully conscious, so that we can see it in terms of what it is as dhamma rather than as self, and then you can let it go, and the and the and the tendency to resent falls away. No longer a problem. But the skillful means depends on on you. You know, the, uh, various tech. You know, one Ajahn Chah is very good at encouraging us to develop our own skillful means because we know how we suffer and what kind of character, where our weak points are, and we and where we we tend to lose it, where we get lost or overwhelmed by our emotions. And so then we can develop attention to those those weak points as we begin to understand ourselves more and more and see ourselves in terms of Dhamma or the truth of the way it is rather than in terms of the critical mind which is always, you know, going on endlessly about how we should or shouldn't be. So for the next week, just uh, encouraging this kind of investigation and and uh, to develop this this pati, uh, recollecting, remembering. It's like this. This feeling in my gut is like this. And as we go to the kind of feelings we have in the in the belly or wherever we're feeling tension or or whatever then we we're not trying to figure out why we're having this but we can be aware of it as it is just being able to accept it more and more then the insights come to us through through awareness through sati and panya rather than through analysis based on the, the self view I offer this as a reflection. Antamayam Tamakata Satu Karankata Mase. <laughs>